scripture today is from the book of Acts. Uh, The Gospel of Luke is his volume on the life of Jesus and his work on earth. The book of Acts is really volume two of that gospel, and it tells about the work of the Holy Spirit and the church. So listen to this beginning at the first verse in the ninth chapter. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, women or men, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? And the reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up, enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice, but they saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias? And he answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands upon him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard about, from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before the Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house, and he laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Saul first appears as a footnote in someone else's story. The other man is probably about his age, a leader of the early church in Jerusalem, and his name is Stephen. In one of those spats turned deadly, Stephen was dragged before the authorities and charged with defaming Moses and the temple. We heard him claim that Jesus from Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses gave us. Well, Rather than argue and answer the charges of, well, I didn't quite mean it that way, Stephen made matters worse until finally the fracas spills out into the street. Someone picked up a stone and threw it. The stones flew, and finally Stephen, battered and broken, lay dying in the street. 
The footnote says that as the stones started flying, the men took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul, and that Saul approved of what had happened. Well, Luke's story then goes on to other events, but soon we see Saul again, this time on the road from Jerusalem to Damascus with warrants in his hand. And there really is a terrible fanaticism about him. I want to know what drives him. Why is he so angry, so determined? Is that hate simply the flip side of a love that maybe has already begun? Well, scattered throughout Paul's letters, we do learn bits and pieces. He was a good Jew, a Pharisee, one of those who had committed themselves to learning and keeping the law. He'd studied at the feet of Gamaliel, to this day discovered one of the great rabbis of all time. It seems that Saul really considered Jesus and his followers heretics, a terrible threat to the faith. And I wonder what it did to Saul to watch Stephen die. Luke tells us that as he died, Stephen was given a vision of Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And that like Jesus, Stephen's last words were a prayer of forgiveness for those who had killed him. What did that do to Saul? Luke doesn't answer any of those questions. I doubt he really even asked them. They tend to be more 21st century questions. Luke's report is far more objective. Saul set out to Damascus to kill Christians, and by the time he got there, he was one of them. And that was God's doing. Flannery O'Connor once quipped, I reckon the Lord knew that the only way to make a Christian out of that one was to knock him off his horse. Well, Luke doesn't mention the horse. But he does say Paul was knocked to the ground and thrown for a loop all the way down. And the trouble with this story is that we're tempted to think that that's the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to happen to us, that sort of blinding moment of change. And let's face it, if that's true, then for most of us in this room, we fall short. And does that somehow make us second-class Christians? Sometimes when new members meet with the session or in other kinds of small groups, I divide everybody up into twos and threes and ask them whether they're seasoned members or new members to share something of their own journey of faith. And it always strikes me how ordinary most of it is. An insight there, a moment of decision there, not a great heavenly light, but you know, just the stuff of ordinary living except that ordinary living has changed. C.S. Lewis has been one of the strong witnesses for Christian faith in the past century. And you remember his story from the movie Shadowlands, perhaps? Or let me tell you, if you haven't read Narnia to your kids, you better get busy. Start with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. But in his book, Surprised by Joy, Lewis talks about his own journey from disbelief to faith. And it says it was made one small step at a time. And of his own conversion, he writes, I know very well when, but hardly how, the final step was taken. I was driven to Whipsnade one sunny morning. When we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. 
and when we reached the zoo, I did. Yet I had not exactly spent the journey in thought, nor in great emotion. Emotional is probably the last word we can apply to some of the most important events. It was more like when a man, after a long sleep, still lying motionless in bed, becomes aware that he is now awake. Not a dramatic conversion, but it certainly was one that took. And there are folk in Christendom who make a lot of emphasis on that moment of conversion. You know, for 16th century Puritans, it was essential. You had to be able to tell when and how. And most of us know folk today who want to know when we were saved or what that moment was like. You know, Presbyterians tend to put the question differently. And rather than ask, are you saved? We're more likely to ask, well, now that you're saved, what are you going to do about it? So go back to our story about Saul becoming Paul. Because his story certainly doesn't end there on that Damascus road, does it? He stumbles into Damascus and waits, and soon a man named Ananias comes to him. Now that's a whole story in itself. You see, there are already Christians in Damascus, and Ananias is one of them. And he's already had his own conversion experience, whatever shape that took, we don't know. But now he has to live it out. And living it out means he has to go and visit the man who has come to town to kill him. And you can hear him asking, are you sure about this, God? I don't think this is what I signed on for. You know, some of you probably know what it felt like to have to reach out to people you were angry with in this church. It's not that different. But God says, yes, it is what you signed on for. I have plans for Saul, and I've already begun to set them in motion, and you have to be part of that. Now, God's assignments are not always the ones that we choose. Sometimes they're, you know, sort of down at the bottom of the list. But whether they're what we choose or not is not the point. If they're what God chooses, well, you might as well just get busy from the beginning because God is not good at taking no for an answer. So however reluctantly, Ananias knew that he better get busy. Which Paul also did because you know the story doesn't end in Damascus and Saul the fanatic Jew becomes Saul the fanatic Christian. And my hunch is that one reason a lot of us resist giving ourselves over to God is that we're kind of afraid of losing who we are. And as much as we know we probably need to make some changes, we don't want to change so much that we're no longer ourselves. And if that's you, then look at Paul. Sure, his sense of focus and direction changed, but that same sharp mind was still at work, and that same single-mindedness, the same driven energy, the same throw-yourself-into-life style that was his. God wanted Paul. And if God had wanted somebody else, God would have called somebody else. But God did want Paul because only Paul could do what that particular task was. Now, not all of us are called to the kind of public ministry that was Paul's. 
Some of us are called to very private ministries. And they may be very small things. But what a difference they can make in someone's life and often in the world itself. You may never know what a difference you've made, but somebody knows, and God knows. You know, yesterday at the women's breakfast, I was asked, we're the women of the church, and what can we do as this church moves forward and you leave us? And I said, you know, women have traditionally been the mothers. In fact, in the black church, they call them the mothers of the church sometimes. But they're the ones who create relationships, who help to build community, who help people kind of oil the wheels of human interaction. That's an important ministry. And it's one that, that can be done with a lot of prayer and thought and intentionality. But finally, this from Karl Barth, who was one of the towering theologians of the past century. Barth writes, One is never a Christian. One can only become one again and again in the evening of each day, somewhat ashamed of one's Christianity of the day just over, and in the morning of each new day, glad that one may dare to be one all over again, doing so with solace, with one's neighbor, with hope, with everything. The Christian congregation is of one mind, in that it consists of real beginners. A colleague used to say, I've been saved again and again and again. I suspect Paul would say the same thing, as would I. Amen.